Well, good morning, Established Church. Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have one, a, a stack of them there at the entry to the room. Uh, if you need a Bible, don't own one. We'd love for you to make that yours. And a little um, shelf there, some pens as well. In your bulletin, you'll find a sermon note outline that's just uh, available to you to be able to take some notes as we look to the Word of God this morning. My prayer is that our time in the Word this morning would be a catalyst to your time in the Word throughout the week. We'd meditate on these truths that we would leave here not hearers only, but doers of God's Holy Word, um, expecting Him to do a mighty work in us. It's a joy to continue to be preaching the Gospel of John. Today is sermon number 65, this beautiful journey through this testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Um, I want to read the text that we studied last week as today is part two of this section we're in that I've titled Persecuted in Jesus' Name. Last week we looked at John 15, 18 through 21. And that is not in Jonah as I have it open here. Eighteen to twenty-one. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It is the last hours in the middle of the night the day before Jesus would go to the cross. He is taking this very important time with the 11 faithful disciples he's walked with for three years to embolden them, to undergird them with truth and an understanding of what's about to happen and who he is and who they are, and he's loving them right now. He's, he's helping them be ready for what's coming. And here, he wants his followers to know that the world is going to hate them. The emphasis of Jesus' words here is, don't be surprised when a world who is set against me and hates me hates you are a Christian who have died to self to live for Christ, who found salvation in Jesus as Lord. Your life no longer is your own. You live for Him and for His glory. You hold to His word. You obey His commandments. They're going to hate everything about that. You're not of this world, He says, but I chose you out of the world. The beauty of God's election, of His sovereign moving in our lives. What great news this is. Understand, you don't want to be loved by the world. 
To be loved by the world is not to stand with the one the world hates. The only one in whom we have hope and salvation. Jesus is clear that they will hate us on account of his name. It is the name of Jesus that defines us. Because we live in the power and in the name of Jesus. We will receive, because we do these things, we will receive the persecution our world has for him. This was good for the disciples, so that they were ready, they were emboldened for the opposition they would face. It is essential that we have this undergirding, that we too have this understanding. For if we stand with Jesus, and we look to make much of his name, and we will actually stand in fulfilling his truths and obey his commands, then we too will be persecuted. So let's turn now to the next part of Jesus' emphasis, the scriptures that we'll study today. We'll pick up at verse 22 of chapter 15. We're actually going to move all the way into verse 4 of chapter 16. Starting in verse 22, Jesus continues, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that I have, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes that you may remember that I told them to you. I did. All right, let's pause there. Back to verse 22. Guilty and without excuse. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. First, let me be clear that the whole of the Bible tells us what this is not saying. We have to make sure we don't read this the wrong way. In other words, that Jesus coming and speaking is somehow the introduction of sin. The scriptures are clear throughout the Holy Bible that even those who never meet or hear about Jesus are guilty of sin before God. And are worthy of his righteous wrath for that sin. This is because of general revelation, the general revelation of God to make himself known through his creation and the fact that the law of the Lord is written on all mankind's heart. One of the places we turn to to clearly understand this is found in Paul's opening words in Romans 1. Look there with me. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25 says this. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Church, mankind is guilty because of original sin of our federal head, Adam, and from our practice sin of turning from or disobeying the clear revelation of God that He's made through creation by writing the law of God on our hearts. Mankind, who then is exposed to God the Son himself, was all the more guilty, for they not only reject, rejected the general revelation of God, but the Savior, God the Son, in flesh himself. They not only rejected him, didn't believe in him and trust and worship him, they persecuted and killed him. So Paul says in Romans 1 that mankind is without excuse for not believing and trusting in God because of his general revelation, how he makes himself known through creation. This is, what, this is how we explain the fact that um, those who, are, who never presented the gospel or um, have witness of the holy word are still guilty under God's sin because they still have denied God in his general revelation. But Jesus is saying those whom God has made himself known personally in the flesh are all the more without excuse. Jesus is elevating the clarity of God's judgment, especially on those who reject God's gracious revelation the one who is the Word, as this Gospel of John opened, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. In this rebellion against God, they show a decisive preference for darkness rather than the light, who is Christ. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, verse 19 and 20. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Praise God when he's doing a work on your life and he's drawing you out of the darkness. He's drawing you out of a season where you have been on the throne of your own life. You're the Lord of your own life, calling your own shots. Living for your flesh, trying to navigate this world and and do what you want or what you think is best. When he's in that season of, of drawing you to himself and drawing you to the light. And that work of his sovereign hand is at work in your life. Praise God for that. Because without that, we will just continue to choose the darkness. We, we won't want our stuff to be exposed in the light. And, and, and we only ever do because we don't stand in our own merit. But we stand in the merit of the perfect one, Jesus. We stand in his perfection. It's why we love the light. If it, was, if it was I had to stand in my own, I, I would never go there. I would never expose myself to it. But Jesus makes us new. He gives us a new beginning, a new power to honor and obey him, to fight sin and push it off, and, and begin a new life for the glory of God and the good of the body of Christ for all that he has before us. Rejection of Jesus' words and works is a rejection of the light, the fullest revelation. Therefore, it receives the most central and deepest stained guilt. So, fleshing it out further, in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, there's his words, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. That's not saying they weren't guilty of sin before that. It's just saying that they're all the more guilty with the presence and the revelation of God in flesh and his words audibly being spoken to them. Jesus is specifically pointing to his words here, his testimony of truth. Understand that in Jesus' speech, God's words were heard. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. But it goes beyond words. Look at verse 23 and 24 of chapter 15 here. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So also in Jesus' works, not just his words, but his works, God's activity is seen. Back in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Now understand why this is so condemning for those who rejected Jesus. Because Jesus himself was seen. John 14, 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen the Father, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. God in flesh makes a revelation of God in a whole special way. And they're rejecting that. 
instead of celebrating it, instead of believing, instead of repenting in, in the presence of the light. Therefore, to hate Jesus, he says, is to hate God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. The Jews, in this time, claim to love God. But the problem is they hated Jesus. Therefore, the God they loved was not the true God, because to reject Jesus is to not believe in the true God. The God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true Jews of saving faith of ages past had a right view of God, of the Messiah, of their belief in Christ, of the promised one. Their faith was not absent of Christ. It was, it was dependent on Christ alone. But this is not just an indictment on the Jews, but to any other religion that proposes a way to God that is not in faith in God the Son, Jesus Christ, alone. There are not multiple ways to God. There are not other forms of enlightenment or redemption. They do not coexist. One is true and the rest are lies. One brings life and the rest bring condemnation and eternal death. Jesus himself made this clear. We saw this in chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To receive Jesus is to receive the Father then. John 13, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I beg you, church, not to miss the good news in this today. What is that good news? That there is a way to reconciliation with the Holy God, to eternal life with Him, to joy that's bigger than your current circumstances, and hope that's not based on what you can produce, but in Him. A hope that when nothing in this world is working for you, even worse, the world's working against you. Our hope for redemption, for new life, for eternal glory with God is in Christ alone. Praise God that Jesus came near. This, this is the good news. Jesus came near. God the Son put on flesh. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise God that Jesus came near and took on flesh. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel announced, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. That name Jesus is Yeshua, means Yahweh, the name of God, saves. You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Despite our deep-seated rejection of God in our sin, because we're self-serving, because our aim in sin is not God, it's on the things He created and not the Creator, Jesus came to set us free and give us saving faith in Him so we no longer hate God or against God and for our own glory and stand against Christ as Lord, but we joyfully instead trust our lives to Him. It's the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope of mankind. If you do not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you you must see today, you stand against God as His enemy, and you are rightly under His wrath. The plea from Scripture, the plea to you today, is to turn from your sin, to see it, and to trust your life to Jesus. If this is true and authentic in you, you see your sin. God gives you eyes to see it. He unveils your eyes to see your sin, to see what you deserve. And gives you a joyful, deep, relentless longing for Him. Trust in this gospel. Then God has saved you. And God has given you that saving faith and you are newborn and you are saved to walk in the newness of life, to begin to mature in Him. That's a work of God in your life. It's not something I can tell you what to say and just say these words and, and that's the key or, or you just got to come to church enough and then you'll kind of earn your, your junior G-man badge and then you're in. It's none of that. It's none of those things that church and religion have made it. It's the gospel, it's the work of God to save us and set us free. And I, and I pray you do real business with that if you see that clearly you're still standing outside of that saving grace. If you, if you still believe that you are in charge of your own life and, and you're making your own way, that you would see your desperation for Him alone and you would lean in and ask questions. We would love to walk with you We are not worried about where you've been. Oh, if you could hear the stories about where the saved in this room have been. But that's the beauty of the gospel, is look at what God has done in my life to make me new and set me free. He give me a power for living, for Him, for His glory, an eternal witness. May it be so. A.W. Pink, an old dead guy, theologian of a hundred years ago, said it this way, said it well. It is a most fearful fact, but one most clearly revealed in Scripture, that men in their natural state are haters of God. Romans 1, 30. Their minds be in enmity against God. Romans 8, verse 7. It is this hatred of God which causes people to reject Christ and dislike Christians. Conversely, their rejection of Christ demonstrates their hatred of God. Christ is the test of the state of every human heart. What think ye 
of Christ honestly answered reveals whether you are his friends or his enemies. There is no God in the universe except the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if men do not believe in, love, worship, and serve the Son, they hate the Father. Just as faith begets love, so unbelief begets hatred. Look at verse 25 with me. John 15, 25. But the the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When he says they hated me without a cause, he's pointing to his perfection and holiness. There is no cause for their hatred because he has no sin. The one who is without sin gives no reason for angst against him, but from a sinful heart that resents what is good and holy and true. It's nothing by, by anything that he's done to, a, to cause. It, it is their sin that causes them to hate him. The late Dr. John Brown said it this way, there was nothing in Christ to provoke hatred in any but morally disordered, depraved minds. Nothing in his character, it was faultless. Nothing in his doctrines, they were all true. Nothing in his laws. They were holy, just, and good. He never had done the world any harm, yet he spent his life in bestowing favors on men. Why then do they hate him? Why do they persecute him? Why do they put him to death? They hated him because they hated his father. He had given no cause for their hatred of him, It must be therefore attributed to their desperately wicked, depraved hearts by which all of us who are now saved once were. In this, the Lord was further fortifying his disciples in in these words. They must not be surprised nor offended at the bitterness and malice of the ungodly, but see the reason for that malice and that hatred. His conduct had been mild, benevolent, yet they hated him. Let us see it, that we give man no cause due to sin to hate us. Let us follow our Lord in that path, that in our sin we don't cause them to rail, but in our obedience alone, in our trust in him alone is why they do detest us. Let their enmity against us be unprovoked by our our actions, but only provoked by our fellowship with Christ. Jesus said it himself, Matthew 10.25, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? They said Jesus was was of the devil. How much more are they going to have some really strong words for us who are his household? Another thing Jesus does here is to point out that by hating him without cause, they fulfill scripture. 
Poignantly, we see Scripture in Psalm 69, verse 4, say this, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that looks forward to the Messiah, to the coming of the Messiah. Many of the things in Psalm 69 about Christ are commented on in the New Testament, often referenced back. God knew their hatred. God knew that they would hate His Son. God knew they would kill His Son. More than knowing it, God ordained it. It was part of His redemptive plan to save us. Listen to the sermon that Peter gave at Pentecost in Acts 2, 22-24. Men of Israel, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the, the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hating Jesus was part of the plan. In this, Jesus is saying to the disciples, it is not the end of the plan. The plan is not getting upset. The apple cart's not getting turned over when they hate me without cause and they hate you without cause because of your alignment with me. God is on the throne. Do not be dismayed at the hatred of the world for me and for those who stand with me. In case the disciples were feeling unsettled or overwhelmed by this news, Jesus points them back to the one who will help them endure to the end, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. How will the disciples overcome the world's persecution? How will they overcome its hatred? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, all believers ever since have gone into the world and literally turned the world upside down. The testimony of the gospel that changes lives. The Lord has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, persecution is real. It is a part of this life until we are in glory. Hatred will be there. But so will the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish His purposes to gather His church to the ends of the earth. Amen? Notice Jesus calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth here. This is not the first time Jesus referenced the Spirit in this way. John 14, verse 17, He called Him the Spirit of truth. In John 14, verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The truth. Later in chapter 16, verse 13, he'll refer to him as the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. Truth is a major work of the Holy Spirit. 
He works in revealing our minds to the whole counsel of God as it relates to worship and doctrine and Christian living according to the word of his truth. He is the ultimate guide going before, leading the way, removing obstructions, opening the understanding, making things plain and clear. So praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was a good word to the disciples in this moment. Jesus continues to speak about what the Holy Spirit will do, and then them, look at the second part of verse 26, He, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness about me. And then in 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The the Old Testament prophetic literature pointed to God's end time people, this great commission season of us being his witnesses to the nations. Listen to the way this is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 43, 6-12. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See see God's aim for his elect, his people near and far that he's drawing to himself. Praise God for his work in these things. Verse 8, bring out. The people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. Amen. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declare and save and proclaim when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Amen. In the New Testament, the Spirit is called our guide in truth, to testify the gospel, to to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done to set the captives free. The Spirit is our power to testify. Jesus said this very clearly in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those who are saved and sanctified by the presence of the Holy Spirit, are to be witnesses. And so what does a witness do? If you are saved and sanctified, you are a witness. You've been given eyes to see, ears to hear, the claim of the gospel in your life, been made new. There is nothing greater that has happened to you. It is the story you should long to tell more than anything else. I I give a, a lame example of this that hopefully shakes some life on it. That if you had happened to you eight months ago that someone jumped, dove, pushed you out of the way of a semi and they were flattened and killed to save you, you would not grow tired or weary of telling that story. And those who know you and love you would never grow tired of hearing it. Why? Because you're still here. Because that's amazing. 
And yet that pales in comparison to what a holy God has done to put on flesh and to take on your deserved wrath so that you could be pardoned, set free, made new in Him to be His adopted son or daughter and reign and live with Him forever. Church, let us never grow weary or tired of testifying what God has done in our lives. What does a witness do? They testify. A witness who refuses to testify is a terrible witness. It is the gospel of Jesus being preached, being shared, that God has decided to be the vehicle by which to set the table for salvation, that we would go and and speak the words of the gospel. The general call of the gospel must go out. Romans 10.14, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Do you believe that? That his design is that the gospel would be heard. And via that vehicle that he's ordained, he will bring about saving faith in those whom he chooses. The the saving, the who, who is saved and who is not, not up to us. The proclaiming, the testifying of that gospel is what you've been given today for and tomorrow if he gives it to you, church. Do you take that seriously? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Rob and Beth are with us this morning and they're 14 days from a one-way ticket to Indonesia to a people group who have never heard the gospel whereby they are ready to give the next 20, 30 years of their lives to the preaching and testifying of the gospel with the hopes that if it's God's will, many would be saved and matured and elders would be raised up and a church planted. Amen? Thank you. Thank you for believing that. May we, who God has here, not ever be slow to testify. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Jesus. The ministry that we've been given, this is the call in our lives to put out that gospel announcement. Gospel comes from the Greek word evangelion. And evangel was news of a a great historic event such as an important victory, rise of a new king. It wasn't just news you would hear and then move on. It was news that changed your life. The Christian gospel is known as the good news. It is the news of what God has done to reconcile to himself his people. The gospel is the good news of grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved, and they are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. The gospel of Jesus. 
So evangelism then is the sharing or the proclaiming of the evangel, the good news. It's the proclamation. It's the testimony of the gospel. Jesus is saying, in a world that will hate you and persecute you because you stand with me, you are to be my witnesses. Not on your own power or might, but with the power and words of the Holy Spirit. Church, what a blessed call on our lives. He doesn't just save us and then speed track us to glory, but He sends us out. He sends us out according to His word as sheep among wolves. And as we're told again and again and again, we will be persecuted, we will be hated, and some will even be killed. To testify of the life-changing gospel to those he intends to save. Jesus has made it clear, if if you gain the whole world, if you you say, now I'm just going to live for today, eat, drink, and be merry, and maybe tomorrow I die. But I'm just not going to invest in that eternity thing. I'm, I'm just going to be about today. And, and Jesus says, what if, you, what if you gain the whole world, all the riches, fame, glory, experiences of the world, but you forfeit your soul? For what? For what? Calls us to testify the life changing gospel in those he intends to save here and around the world. This is the great commission that we are to fulfill. We're to fulfill it right here in Bakersfield, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. Don't be that Christian that's known for just attending church, maybe for being known for being really involved in your church. And that's as far as your testimony goes. So so they know that you're into religion in their mind. That doesn't call them to anything. That doesn't point them to the light. It doesn't reveal their sin and their need for a Savior. They need the gospel, church. We need to be willing and bold enough to go there. And and why do we not? Because if we're honest, we don't want to be persecuted. We don't want that relationship to end. But as we study this, as we study how Jesus is preparing his faithful ones, I don't see that we get that option. And I think when we really lean in and see it with all that it is, We count it our joy to suffer such things for his namesake. We must be diligent in making disciples. Don't don't just look at the work of Robin Beth in going as the epitome of fulfilling the Great Commission. No, they are the product of being discipled. Are we making disciples who make disciples? That's what we're charged with. Some of those disciples will go. 
Where, what will they go to do? To make more disciples. It's all about disciple making. It's all about testifying the gospel. Those whom God saves, we, we mature, we grow up, we train, we walk with them. Rob's told me many times, Josh, keep, keep leading Disciples Church to do what you're doing. That's what you need to do. That's what they need to be doing. And I'm excited about those who will come forth and go from Bakersfield to the ends of the earth. But see it. See it get that far. See it to the ends of the earth. We've got to get there. And see how beautiful it is. I was watching some of my former students from youth group of old Here's a picture of Robin Beth and the family. Did you see that already? Was it behind me? Not that one. There. All right. The next picture is some students of mine of old who are now parenting three little ones. And three, four years ago, they moved to Senegal, predominantly Muslim territory, unreached people group. And they're finally building their house out of mud and digging their their plumbing and he had to redo all the plumbing because the guy who did it did it totally wrong. <laughs> digging their, their well for water. There's more pictures I'm not showing you, but the kids inside and seeing it come together. Years of preparation, years of just getting into these people to begin to testify. Praise God. Amen? What a task we've been given. What a privilege. But it will be incredibly hard work. This is why what Jesus says next is so key. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is emboldening the disciples with all these words and truth. What a gift. What a gift it is that he has preserved and persevered his word, his written word, so that you and I have it to study today. And hear his words for our sake. Therefore, he's emboldening us to keep us from falling away when it gets incredibly hard. And it will. Unless you refuse to testify and stand for the truth, which maybe you're doing. You see, if you're quiet, the enemy doesn't need to persecute you because the gospel is not being shared through you. It's not being testified of. And a, and a gospel that's not being testified of is useless for the hearing of the gospel. So you don't need to be persecuted. If you're not testifying the gospel, then you're not a threat. When we choose to be politically correct or quiet in the face of persecution, when we put the light of Christ away to be peaceable with others, the darkness is not going to push back. But when we testify, when we shine the light of Christ, when we speak truth, they're going to hate us. 
because they hate that light. They hate God. They are living for themselves. They will persecute and reject us. Why? Because to them it's insanity. Jesus is saying these things to keep us steadfast and from falling away and giving up. He, church, trust in God. Do not lean on your own understanding as you experience great hardship. Be encouraged, not in your own ability, but in the blood of Jesus, in the fact that you're, you are fully adopted by God. Be confronted and rest in the truth that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. John 6.39. This is the will of the Father who sent me that all he has given me I should lose nothing but will raise it up at the last day that we will finish if we are truly his. Let us not let up but press on. As, as Scott emphasized in last week's midweek lesson, in Philippians chapter 3, I'll read it to you again. Chapter 3, 12 through 14. Not that we've already obtained this or, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it known because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do is forgetting what is, lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. Amen? Now to really drive it home, he makes it clear again, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Look, chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. When he says they will put you out of the synagogues, is Jesus' way of saying the things that you have held most dear in the Jewish culture and your faith up until this point are going to be taken from you. The circles you ran in, some of the most precious that you once ran with, will throw you out. This is really the fullness of the hate they have for me and therefore for you is what he's saying. Church, understand the application for us today in that this is hard and it's real. The equivalent of them being thrown out of the synagogues for us is for you to be rejected by your own families. From your former circle of friends, from the groups or teams you once deeply valued and were involved members of. To not understand that you're Dying to self and living to Christ. You've got to understand that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost some things that are very precious to you. Understand the, the fight we're in, the vastness of the divide between the two worlds of self-worship in sin and the perfect righteousness of God and salvation of Christ alone. Jesus is continually saying their blindness runs so deep they will think that murdering you is of service to God. And we know that to be true in how the persecution of Jesus is about to play out in his going to the cross and what that will mean for all the disciples except for John who will be killed for their faith. This is how 
the blind and those in the dark, those who are in lies and sin will run, will we'll operate. So let us not be surprised at the vicious murder of Christians at the hands of ISIS or of other governments. Let us not be surprised at the persecution of our own government on a life that is devoted to Christ. They, are, they believe that what they're doing honors God and country. For all that I just mentioned. And why do they do these things? Jesus says in verse 3, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They do not know. They do not have a reconciled relationship and trust with God because they're still depraved, they're still dead in sin. They're caught up in serving and trusting themselves and not God. Just this week, I counseled a dear brother and sister in Christ to remind them, don't see the attacks of those who oppose you as personal. See what is behind the hate and the persecution. It's driven by sin, by a lack of spiritual discernment. It's the result of sin at work. See the sin so that you don't think that those who persecute you are hopeless. You don't give up in praying for them. You don't give up in testifying to them. Because it's a sin issue that God can overcome. It's not personal. It's spiritual. So keep praying for them. Keep testifying and trusting in the good news of God and how he's at work in all these things. Don't give up. Don't give in. God is the one in charge of spiritual awakening. We are called to faithfully testify, church. That's it. John 16, 4. But I've said all these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Church, church, remember. Don't forget these words of our Lord. Be encouraged. Be assured that what you are going through or will go through is not strange or unexpected. It's not God abandoning you. He's on his throne. He's at work. He has a claim on victory on our behalf. So let us run the race with endurance. Amen? Stand with me. I want to close this morning by reading you the, the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood.
Let's pray. Lord, what an encouragement. What an act of love it is for you to not hold back the realities of the persecution that come with standing with Christ. I would not be loving this audience today to glad handle them and put these truths away to make them believe that somehow life in Christianity is easy and the best thing and profitable and prosperous and with hopes of sneaking them into the camp and hoping that they would stay. But no, Lord, that you will save your people, that you will give them saving faith, even in the midst of exposure to these truths. Why? Because what is to be lost pales in comparison to what has been gained in the fact that they are now reconciled to you. That when you are a prize, when you are a treasure, when you are God, and we love you and we worship you, we will not find ways to avoid these things, to cast them off. We will press on. We will walk faithfully, boldly, and do what you've called us to do. Lord, if there's some here in the congregation today that are convicted by this these reading words of Jesus for his people and for the work that you've called us to in this time. Lord, I pray that they would not wallow in their shame or their guilt, but they would they would repent. They would see their avoidance or their quietness as sin and that they would be bold and press on in the days you give them ahead. That it would be their joy to have been ordained to receive this sermon on this day for these people, that we would do something with it for your glory and others' good. What might you do in the lives of people we love if we would stop trying to manipulate what we think they want to hear? And just speak the truths that you've given us and trust in your power and work in their lives. You're a good God. You've done an amazing thing. Revealed this mystery of salvation in the blood of your only Son. Lord, let us worship you in song and with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.